0: Welcome to the Monocle Banking Podcast, a series brought to you by Monocle Solutions, where we balance the books in the dynamic world of banking. I'm your host, Michael Avery, and in this series, we're going to be exploring the evolving landscape of banking here at home and around the world. We're going to trace the roots of fractional reserve banking. We're going to talk about the rise of the all-powerful central bankers, the booms and the busts from bank loans to bank runs, from old-school vaults to virtual wallets, and the ever-increasing rise of bank regulation and its impact on local South African financial institutions. So whether you're a banking professional, if you're just a financial enthusiast or someone who simply wants to stay informed about the world of finance, you're certainly in the right place. Well, welcome to this fourth episode of the Monocle Banking Podcast. It's really been a busy week in the banking world. We saw the Banking Association, Barsa of South Africa, and the SA Banking Risk Information Centre, Sabric announcing a collaboration with the Hawks. To open a forensic analysis center, to boost our capacity to investigate and prosecute financial crimes. All of this really in response to our FATF grey listing. And uh, we also saw this week state-owned Itala Bank has fallen foul of the regulators for failing to safeguard its clients' insurance premiums, putting its decades-long quest to obtain a permanent banking license in question. The Durban-based bank is also under fire from the Financial Services Conduct Authority, the FECA, for failing to submit financial reports for two years. And we also saw Standard Bank admitting to being at fault for labelling two proof-of-payment documents that the Economic Freedom Fighters had sent to uh, AFRI Forum as fraudulent afri forum last week issued a statement accusing the eff of falsifying the bank's proof of payment and afri forum received uh, an electronic proof of payment to the value of three hundred and sixteen thousand rand from the red berets which they had to pay for legal costs to it but it turns out the bank's business unit has for the past eight years been using an outdated letterhead which included the names of directors who'd resigned long ago as well as an outdated company logo Can you imagine that? Well, it's a pleasure to welcome back Professor Brian Cantor, an economist, former chief investment strategist of Investec Wealth and Investment, and Professor Emeritus at the University of Cape Town. Brian, great to have you back on the show. And really, last week, we we left off about talking about how the Reserve Bank has managed its inflation targeting mandate, and I had some really good feedback from that. But I want to focus a little bit more on This issue of trust in banking, and it's maybe slightly a more philosophical question, and then we'll get into some regulatory questions. But in light of Standard Bank's blunder, you know, we've got financial intermediaries and banks as very important actors in managing the payment system of an economy. Could you just firstly explain their role in facilitating transactions and how they contribute to economic
1: stability? Well, you could hardly imagine a modern economy without money. And money is mostly in the form of mostly overwhelmingly in the form of deposits at a bank, which are perhaps best described as transmission accounts. So all the all the exchanges of money for goods and services are facilitated by a, a bank. And uh, transfers are made digitally these days. So very low cost transfers are made. Through through a digital process, which the banks provide, so that the payment system, which clearly uh, facilitates economic specialization, economies of scale, and all that, the alternative would be barter. You didn't have money; you'd have to barter, which is of course inconceivable. So you have money, and you have and you have a payment system managed by the banks, which is crucial to the. Uh, to the economy. It's a crucial service. It's an indispensable service. And the reason why we, we should be concerned with the stability of the banking system is because the banks supervise the payments. And without that, you'd, you'd have chaos. So the reason for, if, if you like, for coming to the rescue of a banking system which is melting down is to preserve not so much the banks or the shareholders in those banks, but the uh, payments system. And we, we certainly depend upon the reliability and predictability and efficiency of the of the payments system, which I think, again, you could argue or you could realize because it's more digital, it's become a lower operations. In the old days, banks used to have to clear checks. These days, they, they clear it digitally. It must be a whole lot less expensive than it was. Though one of the expenses is clearly avoiding fraud. So, so the banks are responsible for the safety of the deposit accounts, the transmission accounts that people hold conveniently with them. And I think that's an important point you raise, because what we're seeing currently,
0: Brian, is this fierce competition amongst not only financial service providers, but would-be financial service providers. We see telcos who are now using the very same rails and banking system to offer payment services and systems. We see over-the-top providers. We see alternative payment mechanisms like cryptocurrencies emerging, all of this points to fierce competition with the banks for funds and investments. And it's very interesting. How might emerging alternatives to traditional banking services impact the industry, especially in the context of
1: providing payment services? Yes, well, Bitcoin, I think, it's, it doesn't involve banks. But if you're an alternative payments facilitator for a fee, you are, in fact, dependent on the banks also because you can't provide that service without a banking account. So, yes, you're competing with the banks for the transfers that people want to make, but you have to have a deposit with a a bank. These alternative payments providers also need a bank. And uh, unless they are banks themselves, unless they have a license to operate as a bank when they become a bank but if they don't have that license and that's crucial yeah i think they depend upon on the bank so the banks in fact the banking account is necessary to to the purpose so they have to keep their, their cash reserves with with a a licensed bank and that raises uh, all sorts of interesting questions about you know how do you qualify as a licensed bank with and, that, and that's that's the essential distinction if you're a licensed bank you have a deposit account the bank has a deposit account with the central central bank so that's what makes you a bank you keep your cash reserves with with the central bank all other financial organizations institutions keep keep their cash reserves with with the private bank
0: with yep.
1: one of those banks that have the the cash reserve, the, the deposit facility, the central bank, which, upon which they now typically earn, earn interest. So, in fact, those deposits are no longer non-interest-bearing. They are, in fact, interest-bearing and quite attractive in that sense for that reason, more attractive than they used to be when they didn't pay interest, but they... The banks in South Africa and in the U.S. and elsewhere now typically hold cash reserves. That is, deposits with the central bank in excess of what what are regulated minimum cash reserves. So they hold excess cash reserves, and they earn interest on their cash reserves.
0: So that is effectively, you know, to an extent, sterilizing that capital that could be deployed elsewhere in the economy because they're attracting interest and the banks clearly feel that it's attractive enough to do so. What do you see as the long-term impact of this move by the Reserve Bank to start paying interest on these cash reserves that private banks are paid by depositing
1: their cash at the central bank? Well, I think that's a big, a big question. And one, one doesn't know how it will evolve. It's been true in the U.S. since the global financial crisis that the banks have held mammoth, truly mammoth uh, amounts of excess cash reserves upon which they've earned interest. And the, the danger, if you like, is that those cash reserves can be turned into overdrafts. So, so a, bank, a bank is in the business of making loans. And overdrafts and holding you know, interest-bearing securities of all, all kinds as an alternative to holding cash. So if you if you turn cash into loans, the spending that that the banks facilitate with their loans then ends up as deposits in the banking system. So the the loans the loans made by the banks stay in the banking system. The Overdrafts of one bank or maybe even of the same bank become deposits in other banks and uh, deposits of money. So we, and that's again, supply of money is a multiple of the, of the fractional cash reserves that banks hold. Remember, banks keep a certain minimum regulated minimum now above the regulated minimum of cash to meet the convertibility requirements of their of their customers and that they have to be able to to exchange um, you know meet the demands that other banks might be making on them for cash in settlement of the transactions of their their customers so if you have a general move, let's say, say say we have a wave of optimism in the economy and people, customers of banks, borrowing customers of banks, wanted more bank credit. They want to expand their businesses. They want to spend more and, and they call for more loans from, from the banking system. If the banks have excess cash reserves, they can easily meet those demands and cash then turned into another asset called an overdraft that will lead to more spending and more more deposits in in the system so that's something and maybe because there's more money around more more spending that may represent an inflationary danger to the system so so a central bank has to be able to control if it wants to control the supply of money has to be able to to Predict the demand for for cash reserves by the banking system, and uh, in order to predict again what will be happening to the supply of bank credit and the supply of of deposits. Remember, mm. the, the mm. bank liability is their deposits; the assets, among others, are their overdrafts. They're two sides of a of a balance sheet that that mm. balances. So, so the, mo- the momentum. Momentum could easily come from the demand for credit from the banks, leading to an increase in the supply of credit. And as the, uh, the spending is undertaken, an increase in the supply of money, deposits, that may well increase m- more rapidly than people, uh, than economic agents wish to hold that money. And so the money then spools over into the markets for goods and services and other assets I'm driving and you can up get prices. So if you want to control inflation, though this is not something given much emphasis by central banks, you want if you want to control inflation, you have to be able to control the supply of money. And the one in that control is the the cash made available to the system by, by the central bank. And in in, in days of your the supply of cash reserves was always very uh, close to the regulated minimum but now we have cash reserves banks held in cash reserves well in excess of that minimum presumably giving them a freedom to respond to demands for credit that wasn't as easy as it was before mm. uh, when banks if they wanted to lend more might have to borrow more from from the central right. bank so bank, bank- used to be cons- and in South Africa used to be consistent borrowers of cash from from the reserve bank They're talking about you know 40 50 billion rand's worth of loans that the that the reserve bank would make to the banking system now now that's not the case those borrowed reserves have fallen away and the banks are holding excess cash they're not unhappy with this and they're earning interest close mm. to the money market on on those cash reserves, but so, if, if, yeah.
0: if if the banks were to deploy that cash quickly, it could uh, present an inflationary spike.
1: Yes, yes, we could get some very pro-cyclical money supply and bank credit developments. That's always been true to a de- to a degree. That money supply and bank credit supplies tend to lead the business cycle in both directions, and central banks haven't always done a very good job of moderating the, the business cycle with their mm. monetary... Authority. I think, ideally, remove the punch bowl when, in fact, people are wanting to drink more and stimulate, mm. <laughs> but they're reluctant. And at the moment, uh, uh, in South Africa, certainly, and in the U.S., there's certainly a reluctance to borrow from banks as well as a reluctance of the banks to lend. So private credit in South Africa the supply of credit to the private sector is growing very slowly less than 5% a year bank credit in general is growing a bit faster because the banks are lending more understandably in the circumstances lending more to the to the government so the government has become a more important borrower from the south african banking system in the us the supply of bank credit has grown and, and money supplies has, grow, has grown to a halt so one of the reasons we, we think that the American economy is heading for t- tougher times, it's hard to think of uh, an economy growing without growth yeah. in the money supply and, and bank credit. And the money supply, again, being the, the liabilities of the banks, their deposit mm. liability. Cash is one of their assets, overdrafts are another. But one of the liabilities of a bank are their deposits, and the other liability would be their capital and reserves mm. which you use at best would be of the order of I say at best it's also a regulated requirement these days of the order of 15% of the assets would be covered by shareholders equity so they can take a 15% loss if you like on the on the lending that that's all if their lending losses exceeded 15% of their assets they would be. Well, they would be. They'd be out of capital,
0: and then making a path to the regulator, no doubt, which uh, would potentially lead to a loss of trust in the institution, and potentially bank runs and rinse, wash, wash, repeat. We've seen it before. Which brings me back to my opening statement, just and very broadly. And I'm not saying you know Standard Bank has has done any of that, but it points to potentially eroding trust. It's disturbing when you see a bank like Standard Bank committing such a blunder, saying that its proof-of-payment receipts have outdated director's that haven't been with the company for years and years. What does this blunder by the bank say about South Africa's banking system, and how important is trust in this system? When we talk about things like moral hazard and bank runs, and you know we've seen it in the past with the A2 banking crisis, how significant is trust in this fractional reserve system of ours?
1: Well, like in all business, reputation is essential to the purpose. A bank that cannot be trusted to pay back its Depositors, to convert deposits into, into cash, certainly wouldn't attract deposits in the first instance. The banks have every interest in maintaining the trust of their, of their, of their depositors. They, they are highly leveraged. Remember, a, ba- a bank is a highly leveraged uh, business. If you think of leverage as the amount of debt you have relative to the uh, your own capital now bank, banks are highly leveraged they have very little capital comparatively and they have these large deposit liabilities but their reputation is all important and and they have to manage their cash reserves it's 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 not regulation per se that determines the safety measures, the, the risk avoidance measures that a bank will take. They, they have to avoid danger just to stay in business, and they typically do. But sometimes things things go wrong, and in, in those circumstances, again, with regard to the stability of the payment system, if, if a bank has misbehaved in the sense of, abusing the trust and, and undertaking more risky lending than than proves to be justified. And it, the shareholders deserve to lose all. Yeah. But there's a very strong case for protecting the depositors uh, in those unusual but certainly possible circumstances. So,
0: Brian, on that point, because we saw earlier this year the collapse of SVB and two other important banks in the US and similarly to the global financial crisis. At this point around shareholders of banks as not being absolved of responsibility in the event of banking failure and the importance of making depositors whole because of moral hazard, could you just explain why it's important for shareholders to bear the consequences of poor management in such situations and how this principle Encourages sound banking practices.
1: Now, Svb shareholders lost everything. The bank was worth nothing after depositors withdrew their money on a on a huge scale, and the the bank itself was unable to convert the, the deposits that were being withdrawn into the deposits of of other banks. So it's, the shareholders lose everything. And there's there's every incentive for the shareholders of a bank to make sure that the bank stays in in profitable business. But there's no there's no there's always a danger in business generally that unwisely the, the shareholders of a bank indulge in more risky activities. Well, the promise of high returns, which which turns out badly, and that can happen with banks. So the allure of high returns encourages risk taking. It's it's like private individuals you know, being enticed by high interest rate on their deposits. Moral hazard story is applies to the depositors. Depositors have to be very, should be very careful about who they trust their 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 wealth to, in the form of deposits. And if you, if you insure deposits against lot and against the banking failure, then you're creating a, a moral hazard. In the case of SBB and in America, deposits were insured up to, I think it was 100,000 or something. And so it wasn't big enough. And it was the depositors that had more than the guaranteed amounts in these banks that suddenly took fright and didn't run it wasn't a run on the banking system it was a run on the individual bank and that's in america where you have 4000 or so banks that's a, that's a danger it's not a, it's not a danger in south africa where you have five or six banks that supply almost all of the deposits Incon, inconceivable that any one of the large banks in south africa could fail its its depositors Though we now also have a form of deposit insurance. So so you protect the depositors, you don't protect the shareholders. Shareholders go down as they did in history, And, that, and that's right. That that encourages them to be cautious and not to you know, not to indulge in, in risk, risky lending practice, which is mostly the case. And um Banks have every reason to want to stay in business, but let us add another point, which is I think crucial: is to understand banks are like other businesses. They are in a competitive business. They are they compete with other banks, both on the the lending side of their business, and on the borrowing side of their business. And competition, you know, drives the process. The search for profit drives. The demand for cash reserves; it, it encourages banks to use the proportion of cash to deposits they're holding because cash, cash doesn't earn that much, and also to usefully undertake uh, lending activities. I remember, remember again, the bank. The banks are not only important to the economy because they they provide the payment system. They're also very important to the economy because they do lending mm. and. And you know, where could our economy be without the supply of bank credit? How could businesses, you know, prosper without without bank credit? So this is very really important in the understanding of banks. They are mobilizing savings. Banks are mobilizing savings in the form of deposits, and putting them to to useful use by funding businesses. And again, there are a concern if all, if all the banks are doing is funding the government. And Not funding business, you would have a much weaker economy, wouldn't you? Want the bank to be useful business to help fund the inventories of businesses, to help capitalize in a way of uh, businesses. Uh, uh, typically, banks also would be happier funding short term working capital of banks uh, of businesses rather than permanent capital. Mm. Short term capital. That rolls over. They fund their inventory. The inventory is, is is then turned into cash and the cash then repays the the loan. That, yeah. That's typical bank business. Sa- safe bank like for a farmer. You fund the you fund the farmer's uh, seed, the seed turns into the harvest, the farmer pays you back for, for, for the short-term loan that the banks made. And and uh, wouldn't work as well otherwise, so banks mobilize all the short-term savings, if you like, that uh, come in the form of deposits every deposit is a, is a saving even if it's only a temporary saving, and the banks turn the the, the pool of, of deposits into useful lending and yeah how, how important the regular you know banks fail with with regulation. Also, So nothing unregulated about the American banking system. What they couldn't regulate was the preference of depositors for safer banks over less safe
0: ones. When we talk about the regulatory efforts of banks, and I just think globally here, Basel and the various Basel Accords from 1 to 3 and the end game that we're heading through to now, the, the very heart of it is this effort to increase capital requirements that the banks must hold, as you mentioned earlier. Had it put to me that it may inadvertently raise the likelihood of individual bank failures, because as you increase that capital requirement, the chances of a bank approaching that regulated capital level increases just, just logically. And so Therefore the chance of a bank walking to the local regulator and saying, Mr Regulator, we're close to our, our our capital requirement level, whatever that level is, then gets into the marketplace and you see a lack of confidence and in today's world digitally you could have a, a digital bank run overnight. Do you think we've gone too far in our efforts to try and regulate banks and avoid bank failures?
1: I think almost certainly gone too far. We've created a whole industry a whole legion of compliance officers for which the shareholders of banks have to pay. So all these all these requirements make banks, including the requirement of, to hold more capital, more than perhaps they would prefer to hold, makes banks less profitable. Now you say, all right, so what's wrong with that? And make banks less profitable. Well, like with any business, you make the business less profitable, you, you'll get less of it. So the trade-off, have yeah, between regulation and the banking system is the role that the banks can play in your economy. I mean, if you if you force the banks to, let's say, take it to an extreme, let's say they've got to hold 50% of their assets in the form of capital and reserves, well, there wouldn't be any banks. And there wouldn't be any bank credit. There wouldn't be bank lending. So that's, I think, something that gets lost sight of. Banks are very useful. They, they provide the payment system essential, but they also provide essential credit to to growing businesses. And in you know, in, a, in a highly developed economy like the U.S., perhaps banks are proportionately GDP and the like less important. But they're very important in an economy like like ours. So so one sh- should be sensitive. The bank should be saying, "You put you putting us out of business." With this regulation, and that, and that's not good for the economy. And I don't think it is good for the economy to simply emphasise safety. I mean, safety or reducing risk comes at a at a price: reduce risk, reduce profits, reduce activity. So those are the trade-offs that that no compliance officer is encouraged to to think about. They 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 think about safety first. Well. Safety is important, but it's not always first. There's a trade-off between risk and return, and there's a trade-off between regulated capital and the role that the banking system can play. Yes, the global financial crisis was not not helpful to to that kind of argument. The banks clearly misbehaved. They took on more risk than they knew properly. They created that crisis around mortgage lending. But I think the, again, the Fed and the US Treasury did the right thing. It saved the system. It didn't save the elders, it saved the system. And I think that's what you've got to do. Honey to the errands, the elders protect the uh, depositors who perhaps do not exercise nearly enough circumspection as to where they deposit their money.
0: And that comes back to that moral hazard story that you you set out earlier, and the fact that you know when we talk about the the concept of moral hazard, it's about whether or not depositors are careful enough in their judgment when choosing where to place their their funds and I think a very important point raised that because that's it's almost market mechanism to ensure some kind of market-based regulation over the banks rather than this very forceful prescribed top-down basel type approach that we see in south africa though and if if you'll allow me just to pivot quickly uh, when we talk about the south african banking system and you mentioned how important the south african banking system is to developing economy like south africa what do you make of exchange controls and they clearly are still very anachronistic in the global financial world. The fact that we've still got these regulated controls of the freedom of movement of capital. Whenever I chat to high growth scale ups, they they throw their hands up in the air and they say, how can we still have an environment where we've got to go and set up offshore structures in order to raise capital from foreign venture capital funds for example because of exchange controls in South Africa and we've sometimes got to relocate our entire families and over the long run South Africa is losing that, that tax revenue, those skills. What do you make of exchange controls in 2023 in South Africa? Should we just do away with them? Well
1: exchange controls are a constraint on freedom. Freedom to do what you might wish to do with your own wealth. So it's it's, un, it's not freedom. It's control. And South Africa long had a huge belief in controlling capital. Now, now that has fallen away. But just for, firstly, the exchange control system is operated by the banks. It's not the Reserve Bank that runs exchange control. It delegates the responsibility to the banks and the customers of banks have to satisfy the documentary and other requirements of their banks to process uh, transactions that involve foreign exchange. And uh, these days, uh, the major impetus for these controls is, is to control money laundering. I mean, so much of what one, one does, even those letters that come from banks to say, if you somebody's going to make you a payment, they want a letter to, from a bank to... Confirm that you have a legitimate banking account. That's your Standard Bank letter, which is out of date. But you you need that letter, otherwise you won't be paid for the used car that you've sold to We Buy Cars. That's that's my experience. And then when you buy a car, which I've done recently, they take elaborate precautions to make sure that you are you are the, the identity that you proclaim to be. So they take a picture of you. Then they don't only look at your your ID. They take they take a picture and, and they go through a whole robotic process. Even though you may be face to face with a salesman, that's that's not good enough. This is all the the money laundering requirements over which incidentally Bitcoin provides a major escape. I mean, where was Hamas paid through Bitcoin? And so you got the money laundering, but. For all practical purposes in South Africa today, practical purposes, not not documentary purposes, but practical purposes, there is pretty much freedom from from exchange control. If your tax affairs are in order, I think the you can remit up to ten million a year, and each taxpaying member of the family can do so. Those those are effectively, and and businesses can do business in Africa without any difficulty or, or encouraged to do capital transactions in North Africa. But I think exchange control is not is not practiced in fact, though of course the documentary story is is mm. a complicated rule. wealthy shall have diversified their portfolios abroad through the allowance, through the asset swap system and so forth. There's really no practical limits to the proportion of your wealth that you can have invested in foreign currencies or indeed in foreign banks or outside the country. So I think that's it's the money laundry story that's that's overtaken. And it's it's very expensive. All the all the hoops and you have to go through to to make a transaction. The cost it's the, the list. Yes, well there you are. If we if we are not compliant with money laundering regulation, they'll, they'll take us out of the international banking system, which would be a terrible loss. Terrible loss.
0: So, last, last question then, Brian, and I want to have you back on talking about exchange controls, because I've got a somewhat contrarian maybe controversial view that I think the, the banks are actually lobbying for the continued imposition of exchange controls. I mean, it not only protects their deposit-based to some extent, but it allows them from an entrepreneurial perspective to ask as many IP-acquiring a- questions as they want to. Because if you're an entrepreneur and you want to transact with a foreign counterparty, you've got to go and ask permission from your local bank. But I don't want to digress from that. The, my last point is around this grey list. And there's been a, a lot of talk around getting us off the grey list. As I said in my introduction, we've now had this partnership with of the Banking Association, with SabRIC, With the FECA now to develop greater forensic capability, from where you're sitting, your vantage point, are we doing enough? Are we taking this urgently enough, this this grey listing, to get off in the next couple of years?
1: No, I think we have to. We have to try and satisfy the international requirements of us, though. We don't always govern very well, as you as you know. Think of think of visas. There was a time we could travel to to the UK without a visa. Well, we lost that because we perverted our allocation of passports and and so on. So, um, unfortunately, trading and and traveling internationally and demands that you meet certain. Legal and regulatory requirements, whether they're appropriate or not, is, an, is another issue. But you have to you have to satisfy those requirements, and you have to have competent, if you like, government agencies that do the job. So clearly, we we lack competence as well as malfeasance, I suppose. But mm-hmm. but competence to manage the system. Now, I I work inside in inside a bank and. I see the I see compliance everywhere, mm-hmm. and when you trans, as I did with with his motor car, <laughs> you see a onerous system at at work. You say, "Yeah, I'm sitting opposite the salesman. I've got to prove my identity." Anyway, that's uh, so we've got it. We've got to get us. If you like our ducks in a row, we've got to offer competent enough government regulation so that we can do international business, so that we can travel, so that we can get a visa, and so and so on, that we can uh, put money in a in a foreign banking account without uh, you know without too much difficulty.
0: I couldn't agree with you more on that last point, Brian. Around uh, <laughs> you know creating so many compliance hoops. To, to jump through in order to comply with issues in in the formal sector where I think the average bank, the average consumer, the average transactor has a huge bullseye on their back. That's not really where any of this takes place or goes on. And it's often been put to me that it's very much like a relay race where it's the first, runner with the baton and that's the banking system that really is pretty much compliant it's the other three in the relay that comes more to the prosecutions and the FACA and the FIC where we do have those those problems and really where we need to see change
1: There's a trust thing we know that we are trustworthy, we're doing decent business and, and we're complying but we know that not everybody is doing so so, so we're burdened with Proving proving our trustworthiness because in fact there are there are gaps in, and and there are exploitable gaps in in the system. So it's not our fault, but we got to live with the consequences of that. Sadly,
0: yeah, that is exactly. the problem. Well, that wraps up this fourth episode of the Monocle Banking Podcast. Uh, From regulation to SVB to moral hazard and the grey listing as well as exchange controls, I'd like to extend my gratitude to Professor Brian Cantor, Doyen in the field of finance in South Africa. Brian, thank you very much. And remember, you can find us on all good podcast platforms. Reach out to me at Badger on Twitter or email the team at Monocle. Thanks for tuning in. And until next time, don't forget to subscribe to our channel. Take care.